Welcome to Sean's Rambles, another interview session, this time with the infamous Mike Underwood. Hello, Mike. Hello. I feel like I'm more infamous because of your your secret unauthorized biographies. My secrets are being exposed. Well, we do need to talk about this because you were involved uh, in the Fourth Cataclysm and a member of Quest, as we discovered from a, a series of very important breaking news uh, tweets from the other day, which I did not write. Uh, we're sent out by a very important news organization. So you want, do you want to tell people what the fourth cataclysm was? They may not remember. Well, in, in this narr- narrative, which is super verified and totally believable, uh, the fourth cataclysm is, you know, arguably it's the fifth cataclysm. Some people say it's only the third. Uh, you know, accounts vary mostly because this is an entirely unverified narrative, aside from this very one trustworthy source. Uh, but it mostly involves... Uh, technology having reached a point where radio waves are now controlling all people and that people, as we think about them, are actually just the incarnated manifestations and kind of ego uh, ego actions playing out of various radio signals. So basically, we're all just radio serials from the 40s acting themselves out. That's a really horrifying idea. <laughs> That would explain why a lot of people don't remember when this all occurred. Right. There is a, a built-in self-erasure to this cataclysm. Yeah, and, and as we know, uh, this is now considered by the UN to be a, a war crime. Well, I mean, the UN really has to do a lot to kind of justify its own existence, don't they? Like, if they don't get to call things war crimes, like, do we need them? I'm sure that's an argument that someone would make. Maybe maybe some of the current politic, uh, presidential candidates in the U.S. Well, they also consider putting uh, American cheese on sandwiches other than hamburgers a war crime. So, you know, uh, they're not exactly the most trustworthy organization when it comes to definitions. Or they're just really big cheese snobs. It's also possible. I've heard that a lot of people from Wisconsin are in the U.N. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. From a, another very important source. I do know from from sources that a huge percentage of astronauts in the USA are from Ohio. I'm sorry, did you, say, did you say that again? You cut out. Uh, I do know from actual sources that a huge percentage of US astronauts are from Ohio. That's important. That is an important detail. I'm sure it's some kind of thing. Say it again? I'm sure that's some kind of thing, and it's probably important to someone. Like, anthropologically speaking, that's actually really interesting. True, true. So uh, why don't we get to stuff that is um, real? Sure. You mean fiction? Well, (laughs) ironically, it's, yeah, we're going to talk about something that's not actually real. Um, But so before we talk about the fact that you've got new stuff coming out, this is also going to be my opportunity to find out something about you as a human being and as a genre fan, because um, I've been doing a sequence of interviews with the various members of the Skiffy and Fanny show to figure out how they became fans. And I want to ask that question of you. What is your earliest memory of being a science fiction or fantasy fan? In terms of my own kind of being a fan rather than like official traditional or kind of new media fandom, 
really dates all the way back to Star Wars. My parents took me to see Return of the Jedi when I was less than one year old, so I probably don't remember it, but there's also a good chance that it kind of marked my brain, and I've been kind of chasing that memory ever since. I don't really remember a time when I hadn't seen or was watching the Star Wars movies, and really early memories also go with uh, The Princess Bride and with the Danny Kaye movie, The Court Jester. So my parents, I, I think of as both having the recessive geek gene and that in me, those those genes combined and I was really geeky from an early age. So they were super supportive and of me being geeky and interested in SF and F stuff and comics. And it's just basically been my whole life since I've been paying attention to stuff. And as I grew up, my interests stayed with those genres that were really important to me as a kid. Interesting that uh, Return of the Jedi is one you recall very fondly. Yeah, it's it's almost like I've been a Star Wars fan as long as I've known how to like anything. That would be an accurate assessment. So uh, out of curiosity, your opinion on Ewoks? I, I'm pro Ewoks because as How I Met Your Mother explains, anyone who was uh, born after whatever year it is that Barney says are predisposed to love Ewoks because they saw the film at a young enough age that they associated Ewoks with teddy bears. Now with the kind of the, the eyes of an adult, I see the Ewoks as totally terrifying because they probably eat people. But from their perspective, they're just, it's just another prey animal. Like they're awesome enough to take down big metal shells that the humans hide in and then they feast. So Ewoks, cool, but terrifying. I I don't think it's, probably that they eat people i think that return of the jedi demonstrates that they will and yeah. probably do right yeah, it seems it seems incredibly likely we don't see them literally eating people but we do see them preparing to cook people and there are all those empty imperial um, helmets and things at the end of the film that just kind of gets gloss over yes it's a very interesting detail that there is basically cross-species cannibalism going on there yeah the 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 cooking and consumption of sentient species by other sentient species it's super creepy yeah (laughs) um so okay so we we started with return of the jedi Mm -hmm. um and and your parents were maybe not super geeks themselves but certainly fostered that uber geekiness in you which if anyone knows you you are like level 57 uber dork geek. So, I mean, seriously, if you meet Mike, you, sh- you could have a conversation with him and he'll like spew out references like a madman. Um, it's, it's rather amusing. So if you just get him talking, but how have you have, has your sort of involvement in reading, consuming genre fiction evolved since you were a kid? I mean, ha- have you found that your tastes have significantly changed? I think yes and no. When I was a kid, one of the things I also listened to a lot of, because I did a lot of books on tape, because my dad worked in an office that was next to like the books on tape office for Bantam AA Dell, because he's been in publishing um, most of my life. So he'd bring home Louis L'Amour tapes, and I would listen to those books on tape, and Lord of the Rings, and the BBC um, audio version, and The Hobbit, and then a lot of the Star Wars audio books. As a like when I got to maybe five or six, I started reading comics, and then I got really into comics when we moved to Brooklyn, and there was a local comic shop. 
I'd take the family recycling because in New York you have deposits. I'd take the recycling, get the deposits, and then my parents let me take that money and go and do whatever I want with it. So I went and bought comics and I got really into X-Men and Spider-Man and some of the other 90s stuff like Youngblood and the, the super extreme stuff. And through school, I read like Michael Crichton and some fantasies here and there. I don't even remember how I found them. Like this is, you know, super pre-internet, like consumer internet. And it was just books. And I remember I'd read, you know, Exiles of Colsack and science fiction and fantasy from all around, mostly the kind of the younger age stuff. I read Ursula Le Guin. So as I grew older, I think I just got deeper in the same interests that, that I'd already fostered, comics and TV and movies and books. And in college, I got into like weird, weird fantasy, like the new weird, and took my, my interest in anime and manga that I had like in junior high and high school because I had a lot of friends who liked it and transmuted that into an East Asian studies major and got into like Hong Kong action cinema and wuxia through a friend of mine, Jack, who um, he's a, a writer and he works at Green Ronin publishing now in, in the gaming world. So I just, I'd create interests from various friends and I kind of practice the fandom of those interests with those friends. And then sometimes those would come and go, but that core of books and comics and TV and movies was pretty much always with me. And if my tastes have changed, I think I've just gotten to the point where I can appreciate a wider range of stuff within the same genres. But even that said, I'm I'm getting into reading romance and try to read more like mysteries and thrillers because those influence uh, science fiction fantasy a lot. And the way that the genres combine is really interesting because romance and mystery and crime are more plot oriented genres. And science fiction and fantasy can be plot-oriented, like there are tale types in the genre, for sure, but sometimes it's just a setting. So the ways those combine is really cool. Um, and I think just I've I've gotten deeper and deeper and more and more into the same stuff without huge taste changes over time. So I think it's interesting hearing you talk about, you know, how, how you're, you're getting involved in all of these different mediums in genre fiction and even in some cases switching outside of genre which goes back to your childhood with the the Louis L'Amour tapes um and has extended now in the present um I, I suspect your interest now in in maybe romance and mystery and other kinds of genres is now also perhaps more driven by your writing career than yeah. perhaps necessarily your parental involvement. I assume, right, your parents aren't showing up with boxes of romance novels and saying, here, read these. <laughs> yeah, like my my dad's first job in publishing actually was pub, uh, doing publicity for Love Swept, um, which is a romance imprint. So like maybe I got a little bit of exposure there in terms of like romance is a thing and there's really great writers and here are these cool people. But yeah, my my genre interests now are fairly self-directed, but I spend so much time on the internet and, you know, I'm involved, you know, with Skiffy and Fanti and my day job, I have so many inputs. So it's never a question of not having something to read or watch. It's just a question of what really, really grabs my interest just because there's, there's always way more than I can, I can get through. So I have to be really self-directed in how I select what I'm going to read or watch yeah, and, and to some extent, it seems that um, you know, as you you've you've done this process of of self direction of 
that it has also had a big impact on your sort of uh, creative interests in all of these other genres. I mean, I know that you have you have worked on comic scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've ever actually worked on TV scripts. However, we have talked at points with with you essentially writing a pitch out of the blue for various <laughs> things on the show. Um, so I know that you you know this isn't something that you just do for for kicks. It's something you've thought about. Um, and clearly, you you write you write fiction. You're also doing that in a very very different formats. Um, you've you've got the genre not stuff, which we'll kind of mention a little bit. Um, and and I'm I mean, what what do you find is uh, the question I'm trying to get at is like what what is it that you find so fascinating about the way in which genre fiction can be sort of transplanted in different mediums um, and the way those mediums I guess talk to us in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I think the core of my interest in genres is just the the fact that they are framing mechanisms and interpretive lenses for storytelling. That you can tell a lot of the same story or a fairly similar story, but if you're telling it in different genre traditions, there are certain expectations of what will be more or less important. So that there's a there's a built-in assumption or a set of assumptions that come with narrative genres that oftentimes are fairly unexamined because p- storytellers are more interested in telling the story. And it's like, okay, this is the, the place that I'm going to tell the story. And this is the tradition for which I'm going to tell the story. You know, here's a new fantasy story. I'm reacting to the fantasy stories that have come before. And if you're versed in that tradition, that long conversation, uh, so the, the kind of the quote and, and idea goes then I'm just going to continue that. And I'm also really interested in stories that interrogate those assumptions, the, you know, the assumptions about what types of things are going to be focused on, the assumption that people all know the same stories previously, because my, my academic background is largely in folklore and mythology. And mythology systems tend to be, or some of them are very, very coherent and consistent so that there's like a, a single corpus but other mythology systems are super um, contradictory. Like if you look at Greco-Roman mythology, there's a ton of stuff. There are tons of places where different tellings and different recordings, like carvings and and all the other stuff that we have from those um, from those mythology systems are super contradictory. So I think of that, and then I think about comic books and superheroes, and I just love taking that step back from not just the stories themselves, but to the social. Con- and narrative context for stories. So like that's really kind of why genre knots happened is I wanted to to do stories about stories and stories about storytellers and the you know why we tell stories, who they're for, um like why and then because I I I need to kind of figure out my own fascination because I've had it basically as long as I can ever remember and I can sort of blame it on the last action hero, which is the first film I can think of watching where genre tropes were spelled out and focused on, but it's just been like a, an itch at the back of my mind or just a fascination pretty much my whole life. Last Action Hero is an underrated film. Yeah, I'm kind of wor- uh, I'm kind of nervous to go back and see it again because with genre knots I've been thinking about it so often, but I just I have the this fear that I might go back and kind of the magic of it would be lost, but then it would be still interesting to do as kind of a personal exegesis to see what's really going on. 
I watched it. I've only seen it as an adult, and I on I thought it was pretty decent. And it's a it's a film that I don't think gets enough enough credit for being rather clever. Um, it, it clever also because it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger is set up already as being an action hero right. by this point in his career, and so it's it's sort of making fun of his the characters he has played, which yeah. I appreciate for that that, that self awareness. Um, I mean, there's even some of that right in Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> but in any case, um, so okay, so we got Star Wars, X Men. Uh, th- we got some classic stuff that has obviously influenced you um, throughout your life. What about today? What are some of the writers today that you th- that have had a great influence on you, either as a writer or as a fan? Yeah, the um, the works that have had the biggest impact on me in the last few years, um, looking at a, a writer's whole career, probably one of the people that has had a, a huge impact on me is uh, N.K. Jemison, Nora Jemison. I read the first of her inheritance cycle, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, when I hadn't been reading a lot of epic fantasy of late. You know, I'd just come out of grad school and I was doing a lot of like nonfiction reading for work. And here's this book that just takes the idea, like the the playing ground, the sandbox of epic fantasy, and comes at it in a really cool, fresh, and powerful way. It's got mythology, it's got the gods, but they're kind of demigods, so it's almost more like East Asian version of gods, or maybe it's like West African with the Orisha, but like it's not explicitly African. Um, and just the way she did world building and the way that those semi-divine characters played out was super interesting to me. Um, very recently, when Angry Robot um, acquired The Mirror Empire by Cameron Hurley, you know, I was reading the book f- for acquisitions, and I got just so electrified by it because it it took some of these elements I saw as coming from or reacting to the weird, weird fantasy, like New Weird, China Mayville, Jeff Vandermeer kinds of stuff, but taking it in a really different way and just incredibly nuanced and rich world building not just like the kind of finery filigree world building of like the little bits at the edges but just deep sociological world building where you have like a consent culture because they used to be slaves and now they've redefined and reinterpreted their whole world to create a space that pushes against what their cultural inheritance was as slaves who've now escaped and that was really striking to me and i i still regard mirror empire as like a a rallying cry of a book standing on a hill saying like, this is what can be done and the ways that we can do things differently. Cause it really, it dives into genre tropes, the tropes and the expectations of epic fantasy and really twists them. But you still get what you were asking for. If you are stepping into an epic fantasy and you want, I want the orphan hero. I want magic systems. I want a really different culture. Uh, you know, and bam, bam, bam down a list. It does that, but not in the way you'd ever expect. Uh, so those are two of the, the really big influences on me. Comics-wise, I think Warren Ellis is probably my biggest enduring creative influence. I read his Planetary during college, and I continue to read his work. Uh, his his short run on Moon Knight is just fantastic, almost tone piece short stories, like one-shot comics issues, which is really impressive. And um, his series Injection is blowing my mind in a really cool way right now as well. Well, excellent. Um, so, okay, so we've talked about all of this, the, these things that have influenced you, some some writers who have uh, continued to influence you today. Uh, Warren Allen says pretty good, by the way. Um, you're allowed to be right about that. Okay. That's yeah. the one. 
Just the one. You you don't get it very often, so don't don't you know don't let it go to your head. <laughs> uh, but uh, you have a whole bunch of stuff that uh, is is out now. You've got new new uh, new project. We talked about genre knots, which I believe the first installment is coming soon. Yep, November seventeenth. Yeah, so really really soon, just in a few months. Um, well, a month and a two months, I guess. Yeah, almost exact to the day. Yeah, excellent. And uh, obviously, you just had another Rivera's uh, book drop. Uh, I believe it's Hexomancy. Yep. Which you didn't tell me was happening. You just kind of just let me find out from Twitter. <laughs> Jerk. Um, you know, there's there's so many social media things that I I can't ever tell when I'm being too loud or too soft on some of them. It's a weird thing. Well, you know, we have a podcast together. I know, but the structure of the podcast doesn't have like a shilling section. Like it's not in the format. Well, we could, you know, we could do things like once in a while, like (laughs) run a little ad for it. We could all record like a special, like Skiffy and Fanty ad. That sounds entirely too smart and useful. We'll we'll have to do it. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, (laughs) So why don't you tell everybody about all the stuff you got coming out in the next two months? Sure. So uh, Hexamancy is out now, and that is the fourth Rhea Reyes story. It's the third novel, but the fourth story because there was a novella that came out last year. And Hexamancy is the conclusion of the first story arc. So it's not a trilogy because there were four books and one of them was a novella, so it's just the, an, a story arc. And Hexamancy picks up right after where Attack the Geek left off, where one of Rhea's kind of enemies has done something really nasty to people in, in her community, her kind of magical geekomancer community. And she's they're going to trial. And then the, the result of that trial creates a whole year worth of trouble where we jump forward and every season something big happens and Rhi has to react to it. And this is a setting where the main magic system that we focus on is geekomancy. And it's basically fandom is magic. You can watch your favorite movie and then emulate the genre tropes of it, or you can t- emulate the powers of those of the hero. You know, watch The Matrix do wire foo, uh, watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer have Slayer strength. Um, or you can take props and tap into the collective nostalgia that lives in them and bring them to life as the thing that they represent. So you can use lightsabers or blasters or um, like Wonder Woman's bl- bracelets can block, bro- uh, block bullets if you're a geekomancer. Or you can take like um, ephemera uh, or like a comics card, comics cards, physical media, anything that's kind of the thing in incarnated in a piece, but not a prop, you can destroy it and get like a one-top, one-shot ritual effect. So it's different ways of geekdom being magic. And that's what she discovers she can do. And because she was raised on science fiction and fantasy and on heroic stories in the genre, She's like, oh, well, I have this amazing power. I need to do something with it. I need to help people. Like, this is amazing. So she gets herself into a lot of trouble and really drives the story because she comes across things as like, well, that's not okay. I need to fix it. And she's like stubborn. And she like occasionally talks like, you know, her, her mouth makes uh, checks that her Kung Fu can't necessarily cash. So she gets herself into a lot of trouble, but she really cares about the people around her. And she's super fun to write. So that is, that, that's a good like chunk of story now that people can read. You know, you could read all four of those together and it's really a nice, satisfying um, 
series. It's not the whole series, but Hexamancy really goes back into stuff that came up in the first few books and ties up a lot of threads while introducing just a couple of new ones. So that's out. And then in November is Genrenauts, which is a new series I'm doing with Tor.com Publishing, and I'm super excited. And it's a series in novellas. The Genrenauts are interdimensional storytellers, and they can jump between dimensions. Every dimension is the home of a narrative genre. So there's wet in a Western world, and in it you've got you know spaghetti westerns, and you've got maybe a couple of other subgenres, and then in romance there's rom coms and romantic thrillers and like romantic tragedies and so on and so forth. And these heroes are story doctors, but instead of like fixing a script, they go to the place and they're living the story, trying to influence it. So I, I describe it as like leverage meets Jasper Ford or uh, leverage, but for story genres. And each episode, I get to send the characters to a different genre world. So it's really letting me dive directly into that that fascination with genres and why stories are told the way they're told and have it be a consistent series. So quick question. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, two questions. Uh, the first is, uh, clearly Hexamancy was influenced by you watching Hours of Matlock. That that's true, right? No. no. Oh, okay. I was I had sources that said that that was that was what you did. You spent like a week and you just watched every episode of Matlock. Uh, that if that happened, I was sleeping and it was uh, Sonambulant Matlock, which is the name of somebody's band. Okay, well then uh, maybe I was misinformed. Uh, but you know that that sometimes happens because my sources aren't always good. Um, the second question I I did have, um, I've completely forgotten because <laughs> I got fixed on Matlock. <laughs> so uh, it was something to do about genre uh, genre nuts, but now now I've forgotten what it was. Um, I do applaud your dedication to the bit. The the bit. The bit with Matlock. Well, it's important. I, look, man, I, you know me well enough that, like, I don't give up anything. Like, I, I came up with a story about you and a pineapple. It's true. Like, the, that whole, like, secret biography stuff is, is pretty hilarious. Like, and from a strict mercenary standpoint, the more people are talking about me, the more people are like, who is this Mike Underwood guy? And, like, what is going on? Uh, so it, it's actually really helpful in this totally bizarre playfully made up uh fake biography stuff it's so much fun (laughs) well and i'm glad that it's fun because if it weren't fun then i would hope you weren't doing it because it's like not like i'm paying you to do it if i were paying somebody to do it then like even if it's not fun they should do it uh if they want to like have that be the arrangement but as something that a friend does just because they think it's funny uh i'm really glad it's it's amusing to you even though sometimes i'm like just i have no idea where Sean is even starting or are you going with this? Like the whole quest diatribe I was just watching and like, yep, I'm going to keep retweeting these and I have no clue what's happening. <laughs> I need to, I need to do a story five of the, the whole breaking news stream. Like I spent, I, I think I sat, I was like in a cafe and I got bored and I was like, I feel like just making shit up about Mike. <laughs> and then I spent two hours. I was in a McDonald's. That's where I was. Spent like two hours just tweeting about you and Paul. It was amazing. 
I think, well, if you storify that, then it will be easier for people to vote for it for best dramatic presentation. If you spent two hours on it, does that make it long form? I don't. Or or would it be? Or would it be like? Would it be in fiction? Because it's it's written, and you can consume it entirely as a written thing. You know, I think it'd be better as a written thing. It'd be like best. I mean, depending on how many words I use, like best short story or, well, there's more coming, but that may make it a novelette. (laughs) Well, if, I guess it's a question of, are you framing the entire thing as one narrative or was that little chunk its own thing? So it counts as, you know, whatever that, that word count length is. Well, I mean, it would, you know, I think it's all one long narrative. Okay. So you're going with the series rule. I mean, there's, yeah, there's going to be more. I mean, look, people need to understand what's what's going on. Well, then, then keep on going, and if you get up to novel length, then realize that you're going to have more competition. So you might actually want to stop at novella. Fair enough. <laughs> Nobody's if you're re- nominate. If you're, if you're really focusing on Hugo nominability, uh, you might want to stop at novellas. Though, there's going to be a lot more novellas published this year because of Tor.com, so I bet that field will be really... Uh, really interesting to see. I think at this point, Novelette is probably the longest. And let's be honest, nobody's going to nominate Breaking News for anything. <laughs> Performative Breaking News, though. Well, in any case. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, Mike, you got books out. People know mm-hmm. about them. And then go to your website. I believe it's MikeUnderwood.com. MichaelRUnderwood.com. MichaelRUnderwood.com. So you it, can find it makes links. the SEO happy. Say what? It makes the SEO happy. Oh, fair enough. Uh, it'll, so folks can go there and they can make sure to get links to all of your books in case they want to grab stuff that you mentioned but weren't your new books. Um, that you should go grab all the Reyes, uh, Reyes books. And uh, obviously when John Renats comes out, you have to buy it. Which is the end of discussion. The, the more people buy them, the more genre not stories I will be able to tell. There's, there's a direct correlation. This is true. This is true. Also, you'll be supporting the, the new Tor publishing venture. Which yeah, I'm really excited. Really cool. it, seems, it seems like stuff's going really well so far. So that is super exciting for me because the more people get excited about that format and that setup, the better it is for everybody. And then, you know, I'm seeing other markets get into novella publishing, I think, because they're seeing Tor.com being successful. So that's good for writers and readers. Yes, and it makes me happy because I'm tired of reading books that are 600 pages long. It's true. We're here for you, Sean. <laughs> I know. All right, Mike. Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking to me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. Not a problem. And on that note, folks, goodbye. Goodbye.